How's everybody doing today? Dude, you know it's daylight savings time when it's like service, it's like a minute before service and there's three people in here and then I stand up to preach and there's like a hundred people, you know, everybody's coming in a little late today, but hey, we, we have coffee on that side of the building. So if you are new here and you've never been here, show up five minutes early and walk the long hallway to the kids' minute area and there's coffee upstairs in the big room, all right? And there's water up there as well, so help yourself. Um, hey, it's good to see you. We're going to be in the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. So we're studying this book that Paul wrote, and as we said, this is one of four of the prison epistles. So Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison, okay? And that's important to know because we go back to that and reference that. But the way that we preach through a book, like if you guys know we preach through Romans, and I think that took a year because we took breaks and different things, but we preach through verse by verse. It's called expository preaching. And that way that we get the whole book of the Bible in its original context. Because when Paul sent out the letter, the church would get the letter and they would read it in front of the church in its entirety. And they would do that, you know, and explain it and, it, and help people understand what it meant. And that's kind of where we get preaching from, like modern day preaching. And so we are going to cover every verse and it's going to take about eight more weeks uh, Colossians isn't as long as Romans, so we won't be in this until 2023. But um, it's a very good book, and I'm excited to break down this passage today. So um, in this passage, again, we're, if you have your Bibles, we're in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. It's, it's a s- small section. But in this section, there's really two questions that's asked or that's answered in the Bible, okay? The two questions are this. Who is Jesus? And what did Jesus do for you? Who is Jesus, and what did Jesus do for you? And, you know, these two questions are like the two biggest questions that we have to answer, or we need to find the answer for in life. Like, they're one of the most two foundational questions. Like, the answer to these questions decide the difference between heaven and hell for everybody, right? Victory and defeat. And like in the answer to these questions is, is life. It's everything. It's found in these. And so if you're taking notes, if you want to take notes and don't have anything, we do have notes in the back. We have little journals in the back that's free. You could take one, take notes, um, or you could write them in your phone. But what's been our custom here lately is to read through the whole passage, and then we'll break it down verse by verse, okay? And so as I read this, see if you could see where these questions are answered. Who is Jesus and what has Jesus done for you, okay? We're going to start in verse 15. It says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your holy word. God, we thank you for this time that we can set apart an hour of our weeks to be with your church body in your house to worship you and sing to you and learn about you. God, we invite your Holy Spirit into this place to fill everybody's hearts, to fill everybody's mind, to give us understanding of what this word says. God, your word says the Holy Spirit's a helper to us and a guide. So God, help us understand, help us um, interpret, and um, God, I pray that we leave here changed because of what we heard today. Your word is powerful. The Bible said your word is sharper than any sword that's ever been created. And so God, we ask that you pierce any lies that we have in our lives. We pray that you pierce any bitterness that we carry. We pray that you pierce any uh, anger, any sin in our lives. God, we just pray that your word does that this morning. So God, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So let me break down the first question, and it's in verse 15. Um, And again, these first four or five verses are all about who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And Paul makes a point to break this down. So the first who is Jesus question is, that's answered is in verse 15, and it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this, it might be like, there's a lot of ways you can interpret it. Like the first part is he's the image of the invisible God. We know God is one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the, the second part maybe has you ask the question, you know, it says the firstborn of all creation. You know what I think of if I'm just reading it for the first time? Is like, so does that mean Jesus was like the firstborn? Like he was born, like in, in all of creation, Jesus was the first, so Jesus was created or born. Like you might be tempted to think that or, or look at it that way. But it doesn't mean that. Um, it doesn't mean that he was born or he was created or he was the first one created. Um, this verse in this passage, it's all about talking about inheritance, okay, inheritance. So back in the day, the firstborn was the heir to the family fortune, right? The firstborn was the place of honor. Now, I'm sorry if you're not the firstborn, but the firstborn person received all the blessing, and the firstborn person received the inheritance from his family. And so this is not about that he was actually born, but he's saying, of God, he is the rightful heir to all creation, that all of creation was created, and Jesus is the rightful heir to it all. Like, he he basically owns it all. And we see it here in in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It talks about Jesus and this heir, and him being the heir. It says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created. You know, that's one of the first who is Jesus questions is he is the heir to all things. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the owner of all things, right? Jesus is the owner of all things. So you look around the world, everything in all creation was created by Jesus, was created for Jesus, and ultimately Jesus owns it all. It's all his. That tree outside of your house, that's Jesus's tree, right? 
When you throw garbage out and it lands on the grass, you're littering on Jesus' grass, right? <laughs> like everything is Jesus's. Everything in nature, every person ultimately belongs to Jesus. He created them. He's the heir to all things. Every created thing belongs to him. He owns it all. And so to go on to the things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and what? See, you guys are paying attention today. All right, that coffee's kicking in. I'm glad. <laughs> like, that's why I ask all. Sometimes I give a little pause to see if y'all listening. So that's good. This side was. This side, not so much. All right. Maybe my hearing's not as good on this side. Maybe it's the pie that got in my ear canal last Sunday. Um, so he makes this point to say all things. Now, you have to realize why did Paul say some of the things that he did here in this passage? Um, as Michael talked about our resident church planter, he talked about a couple weeks ago in the introduction, the people in Colossae, the city in which this letter was written, they had many gods. Like, they came from a culture of having many gods. And many times, they worshiped these other gods. They saw value in these other gods. They thought that they were making their life better. Like, usually when they worship gods, you might think that's really weird. But they saw value in these things. Like, they would worship a statue, and then they would five, five, five dollars, and they'd be like, hey, look, like, my worship worked. And so they were always tempted to go back and worship false gods. And one of the false gods that the people worshiped back then was they were big into angel worship. They, be, they, they believed angels were deities, they, and, and angels are all around us, but they worshiped angels. They sought them out, and they had a, a lot of angel worship. And so Paul says, in regard, like this is almost a target right at the angel worship to the people. He says, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. Like, like those angels, those visible and invisible angels that are in heaven, like God created those things. They're, they're powerful, yes. They exist, yes. They're real, yes. But are they to be worshipped? No. Jesus created them, and they are a part of his creation, right? And so why are you worshipping something that is created? And so he, he puts that back on them. And so the second who is Jesus is Jesus is the creator of all things. He not only owns all things, and he's the rightful heir to all things, but Jesus is the creator of all things. And so angels are created beings. As I said, angel worship was big, and, and yes, they're powerful, they exist, um, but where do they get their power? They get their power from God. And so you shouldn't be worshiping the creation, you should be worshiping the creator who gives the angels their power, right? And so that's what he's going back to, and he's saying, hey, those angels that you bow down to, or as a church, you used to worship, Jesus created those. Like, like, I want you to know that. They're not like Jesus created all the angels. They're not to be worshipped. Do not go back to that. Because some of the people at the church were going back to worshipping other gods. They were going back to worshipping angels. And he's saying, don't do that. Jesus is supreme. And that's kind of the point of the whole book of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is above all things, more powerful than all the things. And so he's not a, one of God of many to be worshipped. He's the only God to be worshipped. Amen? And so he's saying he's not one of many. He's the God. And so don't go back to those things. And many of you are here, and you're like, angel worship seems kind of weird, right? Like, you know, you ever read the Old Testament, and you've seen people who are, like, worshiping golden calves? And you see people who are worshiping angels? 
and you see people worshiping Asherah poles, and they're bowing down to, like, Baal, you know. They're like, and you're like, that's really weird. Like, that's, I would never do that, right? I would never do that. Like, I would never worship something else. Like, that's weird. But the thing about it is, we have to realize that we here in America, we have our gods that we worship. And if they could look forward to the future, to 2021, they'd be like, I cannot believe these people are worshiping those gods, right? You guys know we worship gods, right? We worship false gods. It may not be a golden calf in our living room. It may not be like an Asherah pole in our front yard that you and your wife go out to and bow down to. But in America, we have our gods that we bow down to, that we spend money on, that we give our devotion to. And it's all over. Like, like you can name it. Like, it's, it's called idols. It's idols in our lives that we have that we give our worship to. Anything we give our worship to that's not God, anything that we give our devotion to, anything we give our passion to, above God is an idol. Could you guys name any idols that we have in America, in our communities? Xbox, you think that? Social media, it's good. Sports, politics, spouses, your job, money, food, candy. Yeah. What's that? Animals, like our pets. Yeah. And like, like those are all great things. You think about, I think people said like money. Like money's, money is the God that many, many people, not everybody, but it's a God that many people worship. Um, we bow down to it. Like money is a medium of exchange, right? Like it's, it's, money shouldn't be worshipped. It's how we get things. But people worship money, and if people who worship money ultimately are never going to have enough because if you worship it, it gives you your passion. And so people back then would be like, why are you guys worshiping money? Why do you guys bow down to these things? You know, somebody else said, you know, I thought it was another good one, is the idol is, you know, politics, right? Like, especially in 2020, like last year, there was not only COVID that was happening, but there's also the election and the debates that were happening at the same time. So everybody became extremely entrenched in their political beliefs, right? It took over, like, families separated because of this. Do you guys realize this, right? Families stopped talking because of this. Um, fights happened in our, in our workplaces because of this. Relationships were broken in church because of this. Because of somebody who's going to be in the White House that we're never, ever going to meet and really is going to have little effect in our lives. Somebody's like, no, no, no! It's going to have a huge effect on our lives. Like, I get it. I get it. Jesus is the only one that's going to have a big effect on our lives. Everything else, Satan is going to use as a distraction for his church. And he's going to cause us to be distracted. And so all of these things, like worship is where you give your devotion, your passion, your obsession. Like a good thing, like, to figure out what are you obsessed about that isn't God, Right? Like, God should be our passion. God should be our obsession. God should be our love. What are you passionate about or obsessed about above God? And that's usually your idol. Right? What do you think about? It could be sports, like somebody said that. You know, I've been to, like, a Michigan football game, like, back in the pre-COVID days when they were full. And I remember, like, I would go with guys from church, right? 
The dudes that I would sit next to at church that would never, I would never hear sing at all, like, about the love of Jesus, would be singing at the top of their lungs the Michigan fight song, right? <laughs> they were like, hail to the very, and they were like, had the best voice, and they were singing at the top of their lungs to a football team, but they would not sing to their Savior in church. And I'm like, that's kind of shows that there's an idol there that's built up a little bit. And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong. Like, I was singing too. But I'm singing to Jesus too on Sunday, right? Like, and so you see some of the idols that, that spring up. So you have sports, politics, money. There's, what's that? <laughs> the other thing is, what about sing, like comparison, comparing yourself to other people? That's a big one. We talk about this a lot at the marriage equip you thing. It said comparing yourself to other people has become a big God, right? Like, I'm not content with where I'm at in life, and why aren't you content? Is because there's somebody else that you're comparing your life to. And that's always been around, but with the social media generation, it's become 10 times worse, right? Because, you know, whoever's on Facebook— I'm seeing everything about their life. I get the play-by-play, right? I get the play-by-play that the dinners their wife makes or the gifts that their husband bought them for Valentine's Day. It's right in your face. And immediately when you see that, that a hus- their husband bought them roses and chocolates and your husband took you out to dinner, but he didn't buy you roses, immediately you're like, man, I wish I had that. And it breeds to covetedness and, and sinful things. And so... It's saying, like, do we compare ourselves to other people and ultimately worship how we're compared or stacked up to other people? Hey, they went on a vacation. I haven't been on vacation. They have a four-bedroom house. I only have a three-bedroom house. Their kids are dressed nice. My my kids look like the kids from Malcolm in the Middle. And it's like, (laughs) if I had, you know, if I had her time, if I had his job, if I had this, if I had this— in, in a sense, we're building up idols for ourselves, basically comparing ourselves to other people. And that other person, like we all have that one person that we look at their life and wish we had it, that becomes our idol. It is not that person's fault for posting it. It's your fault for letting your devotion become obsessed with that and making it an idol in your life. And so, maybe it is a time to take a break from social media if it's causing this turmoil in your heart. If it's causing this this idol, or or wanting to be like somebody else. You see, we are prone to worship other things. It might look different, but we are all prone to wander. Y'all remember that hymn from back in the day? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Like, that's one of my favorite hymns. And it goes back (laughs) to—Brian's like, yeah, we're gonna play that next Sunday. Um, but it goes back to, like, we're always prone to wander. And Paul was making a point to say this verse that we just talked about is Jesus is above all things, and he should trump any obsession and passion that you have in your life. Jesus should be way above it. And if it isn't, check your heart and confess it and ask God to help you with that. That's the beauty of forgiveness. Okay, next verse, verse 17 says this. Of who is Jesus? He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And this is a very good point I want to I bring this, in this verse. It's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Amen? Do you guys know what the Alpha and the Omega means? 
Jesus is the very beginning of everything, and he's the very end of everything. He's on both sides and everything in between. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's beginning and end. But not only that is he holds everything together. Like, Jesus is the glue that holds everything together. And that's what it's talking about is, who is Jesus? Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Think about this. Think about how important and how big this phrase is. All the time, he doesn't just have dominion and headship over all things, but he maintains all things. He maintains all things. This is a powerful point, that at all times, Jesus is orchestrating life around us. The sovereign God of the universe is not only above all things, but he's actually pulling the strings of all things. Sustainer of all things hold together in him. It's a powerful point. He keeps your heart beating. You can think about this. Every beat your heart takes, Jesus is like, okay, okay, beat, okay, okay. He's making sure every heart beats inside of your chest, and that's like more than our brains could comprehend because he's God, right? It's more than we could comprehend. The world is not chaos. If you guys look around the world and the universe, the world is not chaos. It's what's called cosmos. The word cosmos means order. And so chaos means there's no order, and many of you have seen chaotic things. It's just total chaos, right? But cosmos is order, and everything has a design, and everything is done intentionally. And that's why we serve a God of, of cosmos, not chaos. And look at the plants around us. Every plant is designed a certain way where it receives enough sunlight. And it, some plants need insects to stop by and, you know, do things and, you know, all these things. And Jesus is ordaining all of that to happen in real time, effortlessly. Like it's not an effort. Have you guys ever been to the airport? Raise your hand if you've ever been to an airport. Okay, cool. Many of you have. Have you guys ever sat back at an airport and look at the planes taking off and coming? Like, have you ever been to a big airport like Chicago or Detroit where the planes are just landing and taking off all the time? Have you guys ever seen that? Like, I thought that was really cool to sit back and see this, where it's like, wow, like a plane just takes off, another one lands, and another one takes off, and they're all kind of landing and, and going in, in, sync, in, in sync. And have you guys ever seen that and thought, wow, that's awesome? And obviously we know that there is somebody up in the control tower that's in charge of all of that, right? He's saying, okay, you go, you land, you take off, you go, you land, you take off, you, and he's just like a team of people or a person is orchestrating this whole thing from the control tower. Now think about that, but think about every wave of the ocean. Jesus is saying, okay, you go. Okay, wave, you go. Okay, tide, you go in now. And Jesus has the power to orchestrate every wave that crashes in the ocean. Now think about when you pray to this awesome, magnificent, powerful God that he can't help you throughout your day. Like, like these problems are too big for Jesus. Like one billion waves happening every day in the ocean that Jesus has dominion over, and he's telling to crash, when to crash, and how big to get. And that's no problem for him. He's telling every nutrient in your body to go to the right organ that needs it in real time. He's telling every breath you take, he numbers it and numbers your hairs on your head that the Bible says. Like, this should encourage you and give you empowerment that when you speak to him, when you talk to Jesus, he is above all this, and we have the privilege to go talk to him, and many of us don't, we go days without talking to him. Because why? I don't know. Maybe we don't see the power in Jesus' name. Maybe we don't see the significance in the power of Jesus. And that's what this verse and these verses are meant to do is, is say, hey, Keep your faith. Jesus is telling 
everything what to happen. He's the creator, owner, and sustainer of all things. He's the glue to all things. Our God is big, amen? Do you believe our God is big? This is what it says. I, I want to share a quick story, but I was reading and studying Romans 10 this week. I know it's not Colossians, but I was reading and studying Romans 10. And in this book, it, they were breaking down the passage of when he said Jesus is Lord, okay? Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, and it talks about this in one of the verses of Romans 10. And I was listening to a commentary on it, and they were saying when Paul was writing this, he wasn't saying Jesus is my Lord or Jesus is the church's Lord. But what he's saying is Jesus is the Lord over everything, right? Jesus is the Lord over every person, over everything. Now, why is this significant that it's worded that way in the Bible? It's saying that this. Many times as Christians, we think that Jesus is Lord if we make him Lord over our lives, and that is false. Jesus is Lord over everybody's life, and Christians are the one that our eyes are open and acknowledging that lordship. Amen? Like, think about it. Jesus isn't just our Lord. He's the Lord over everybody in Muskegon. And the Bible says one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So he's saying the lordship of Jesus is already happening and already in motion. We're just acknowledging, like Christians acknowledge it and worship him, but people out there aren't acknowledging it yet. And so our goal is to bring the gospel to them that, hey, we don't want you to make Jesus Lord. Like, Jesus is already Lord, but we want you to acknowledge him as Lord and worship him as Lord because he's already Lord over your life. He's already Lord over everybody's life. He does not need our permission to be Lord. He's already Lord. And so when we come to Christ, we are acknowledging, saying, Jesus, you are God, you are King. And so let's look at verse 18 and 19. It says this regarding the church. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So up to this point, and this is the final, like, who is Jesus point of this verse. Jesus is the owner of all things. Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. And Paul is making it extra clear that Jesus is God. He's not a prophet. He's not a good man. He's not one of many gods. He's the supreme God of the universe. And in him, he should be worshiped, and there's salvation. He's saying everything is made through him and for him and by him. Jesus came to earth to die a sinner's death. So in all of these things, he came down, came down as a human, born of Mary on Christmas, and he came to, so sinners could have a way of salvation. This is one thing we all need to know. Everybody here is a sinner, Right? Like the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everybody here is a sinner. We've all have sinned. We are all in the same playing field that before Christ, we are all damned and destined to hell. That's just kind of the role. And the Bible says, before we come to Christ, we are enemies of God. We are hostile to God. Right? And so, like, God is our, our Jesus is our means to salvation. We are all destined to hell. The thing about it is God doesn't send people to hell, right? God doesn't send people to hell. Because we have sinned, we are on a road to hell. From the moment that we first sin, the moment that we're first conscious of our sin, you know, at a young age, we are destined to hell from that point. 
We are going to hell. It's not like Jesus is sending us hell. Like, we're on a path to hell. And, and that's where we get the gospel is Jesus provided for us a way of salvation. The way of salvation is another path away from our path of hell. And the way of salvation works is Jesus came down, lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross. And so his blood was poured out on the cross, which the only way you're supposed to die is if you sin. Right? And Jesus never sinned, yet died. And so when that happened, it says here in this verse that he created a way, and he was like the firstborn of the dead. Right? Like he was the first one to walk this path of life after death. And so it brings us to this point, is this, this firstborn of the dead means, and, and look at this, before I get there, it says this in John 14, 19. Jesus says this in John 14, 19. He says, because I live, you too will live. He tells this to his disciples before he died. He's saying, I'm going to die, but because I live, you too will live as well. I'm creating a path. And so, like, who is Jesus? I know it's a popular song, but Jesus is a way maker, right? Like, Jesus is a way maker. You're like, you're like yeah, like, like, this is a popular song, popular in the Christian church, but it's true. Like, where do we get this way maker? It means that there is no way for us to attain salvation until Jesus did it. The other word is path breaker, or anybody familiar with the term trailblazer? Like, what is a trailblazer? Somebody who creates a trail that's never been there before, right? They create a path that's never been there in the woods, and, and he provides that way. And so the reality is when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's saying, the path I'm about to make after my death and resurrection— like, that's the only way you can attain salvation if you go through the path that I made. And so Jesus is the way maker. He's the path breaker. He's the trailblazer. And there's no path to heaven except through him. Meaning that when Jesus died on the cross and resurrected, he created a new way. That path is spelled out in the fact that we were enemies of God, sinners on our way to hell, and Jesus made a way for us to have peace with God. He made us a way to have peace. And so the next question is, is what has Jesus done for you? What has Jesus done for you? It says this in verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so he was the firstborn of the dead, meaning that he's, he made a way for us for salvation. And through him and through his blood, everybody has a way to reconcile ourselves back to God. The moment Jesus' blood was shed, the curse that started in the garden that we talked about a few weeks ago was broken, and there was peace. And so, what has Jesus done for you? He reconciled you to God. Before we were Christians, we were enemies of God. We were like enemies of God. God was angry with us because of our sin. And with this, Jesus made peace between us and God. And so when you come to God and ask for forgiveness of our sins, that brings peace between you and God when you take that path. So it says we were hostile to God. We, the judgment loomed over us, but the blood of Christ brought us in. And so we see in the last three verses how this all comes together. It says this, You were once alienated and hostile in mind. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, 
which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which Paul, I, Paul, became a minister. So guys, at one point, you know this, before you came to Christ, you were alienated from God, right? Many of us remember that. Like, many, many, maybe you were old enough to remember what it was like before you became a Christian, but you were separated from God. There was no joy. There was no peace. There was nothing. Like, you were just on your own, and you had nothing in your life. And as we said, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and we try to fill it with things to try to bring us happiness, but we can't because we were alienated from God. Not up there. Actually, it's a previous one. But either way, makes sense. We were alienated. Like, we were separated from God. We, we, were, we were pushed away. We were alienated from God, but now we're brought near. We were hostile to God, now at peace. We were once sinful, and now we're holy. And so I bring this back to say that when we share the gospel with our friends and family, like we're coming on a time right now, like we're getting close to Easter, where we want to share the gospel with people in our lives who don't know Jesus. And it's important to bring this up to be like, we don't have to try to attain this holiness. Like, Jesus does it for us, right? And that's the, the point of the church. We're the church that sometimes has got it wrong is, hey, you need to act a certain way, and God will accept you. You need to do certain things, and God will accept you. And it's saying, no, it's that he brought you in, and that— um, you can. It says, you were once alienated by your evil deeds. He now has reconciled you in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. So what Jesus did on the cross by dying on the cross, he brought you by your hand. If you put your faith in Jesus, he brings you by your hand to God the Father, makes peace between you and God. And when God sees you, all he sees is holy and blameless, right? That should be like the good news of all good news. I think because people say like, we've invited people to church, right? Has anybody ever said this to you? I cannot go to church. I've done too many bad things. The steeple will fall on me if I walk in your doors, right? Like that's the point of church. That's the point of church. You're never too sinful to come to church, because what Jesus does, if you, all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus, he takes you by your hand, brings you to the Father, makes peace, and says, he's holy. And God's, the Father is saying, yes, he's holy. He's blameless. It even says, he's above reproach. Do you know what above reproach means? It means you can't say a single bad thing about this person. He's above reproach, right? So he's saying, you are so far above reproach, I can't bring a single blame against this person. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense. I sin all the time. I sin every day. I screw up. I mess up. And it's saying when we come to Jesus, he wipes that out and makes us holy and blameless. And it was done by his death and shed blood on the cross. And then at the very end of this, next, could you flip back to the next verse? I keep having you flip back and forth, but it says this. And this, this is kind of ominous if you're reading the Bible. It says this to the church. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, that all these things that were promised will be done. If you continue in the faith. So what is that saying? Do you guys ever wonder that? Like, is it saying that if you don't continue in the faith, you're going to lose your salvation? Right? Anybody ever hear the term, like, once saved, always saved? <laughs> That's like a big tenet in the church, right? Like, once saved, always saved. Um, it's true. 
The Bible says that nothing can rip you from the the hand of God. Like, you can't screw up and sin and lose your salvation. But what was happening in the church is many people were going back to their former life. Like, they were playing the church game for a while. They were doing the right things. They were taking communion. But then they left the faith. And there's an argument where, did they even have faith to begin with? I don't know. We don't know. But they left the faith. They stopped having faith in God. It's not saying that, hey, if you screw up over here, you're going to hell. Like, Jesus already paid for that. And it's saying, it doesn't say, if indeed you continue to be a good person. But it's saying, if you continue in the what? It's saying, if you continue in the faith. So, does anybody know anybody here that used to be a part of the church, used to be a part of the faith, and now they're no longer a part of the faith? We all know people like that, right? Like, they're just done. Like, they don't, they don't go to church anymore. They have no interest in God. They have left the faith. That begs the question, like, are they saved? I don't know. Did they continue in the faith, or did they turn their back on God? As of right now where they're at, they've turned their back on God and said, see you, God, I don't believe what you have to offer anymore. And so people would say, well, they weren't Christians to begin with. I don't know, maybe they were and left the faith. Maybe they dabbled in the church and left, but that's not for us. And if it, this shouldn't, isn't meant to scare you, if somebody says, hey, forget you, God, I don't love you anymore, I'm not following you anymore, am I still saved? Like, why would you do that? <laughs> We've talked about that. Like, why would you do that? If you keep following the Lord, if you keep having your faith in Christ, you have nothing to worry about. If you leave and say, forget you, God, I don't care about anything you have to offer anymore, yeah, maybe you do have something to worry about. <laughs> don't do that. And he's telling the church, don't flip-flop back and forth to worshiping other gods. Don't leave the church. And he's saying, be all in for Jesus. This isn't a burden that you have to carry because the sustainingness of your faith is done by God, and it's not your burden to bear. You can't screw up and lose your salvation. You can't make a mistake. Like, you can't sin and get in a car accident and go to hell. Like, your salvation is secured if we remain in the faith, if we remain following Jesus. You were once alienated, now brought near, once hostile, now at peace. You are once sinful, now holy. Now he's saying continue in the faith. And what you guys have, like what we have is to remember these things, that we are before God, we are holy, we are perfect, and we are above reproach. That's what God and Jesus say. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, right? Satan will accuse you. Satan will say you're no good. Satan will say you're, you're a piece of crap, you're evil, like you're horrible. Satan will say those things because the Bible calls him the accuser of the saints. And Jesus says you're holy. Like you have nothing to worry about. When you stand before God and I'm with you, God will see nothing but purity and holiness. Amen? And that's the hope that we have as Christians. And so I always tell people who say, I can't go to church. I've done too many bad things. It's like, you know what? Hey, you would love the gospel more than most people. <laughs> right? Like it's saying, hey, I can't have my student loans forgiven because they're too big. It's like, no, if somebody said they're like paying off your student loans, bring them all. If you have five grand, great. If you have 150 grand, great. It's paid. Right? And that's where our sins, if you have a little sin, great, Jesus forgives those. If you have a greater sin, Jesus says, you'll love me even more. So nobody is too far gone from setting foot in church. Nobody's done a sin that's too great that they cannot receive 
the grace of God. Let's pray. God, I just, we love you and we worship you and we lift these things up to you. God, we thank you that you are what's called the firstborn of the dead, meaning that you died and you rose again. And so we too will be not the firstborn, but the second, third, fourth. Like we will get to rise again after we die. That's the hope and promise that we have. That this earth isn't all there is, that this fallen world isn't all that we have, that we have a future hope to look forward to. God, we, we thank you that we can't accidentally lose our salvation. We thank you that we can't fall out of grace. And God, we thank you that nobody is too far gone to receive forgiveness and to receive salvation. For those people, it's like, it's a, it's a greater joy to have their sins forgiven. So God, we offer this time to you. God, we offer this message to you. Help us meditate on it and dwell on it throughout the week. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said,